and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. Before I get into this week's guest, I'd like to thank everyone, uh, all the listeners, for uh, your support over the past few months. Uh, Thank you for downloading, thank you for subscribing and giving me feedback. Uh, Thank you for liking the Facebook page. So the Facebook page for Why Do We Do That is the home base for episode updates and my main way of communicating with listeners. So uh, thank you for help growing a a listenership and for uh, building a community of people who are curious about human behavior. Uh, You can also find us now on Instagram as well as Twitter, uh, if you prefer. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Ramani Dervasala. Dr. Ramani is a clinical psychologist uh, in California, and she's also a professor of psychology at California State University. Dr. Ramani has authored several books, um, a couple of them about uh, narcissism, the topic that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, The most recent is called uh, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in the Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. And she's also the author of Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. You might also know her from her extremely popular uh, YouTube channel where Dr. Romani puts out content on on a regular basis. Uh, looking at the ins and outs of narcissism and the behaviors associated with narcissism. If you have narcissists in your life, whether it be uh, a parent, uh, your boss, a coworker, friends, uh, even your spouse, uh, if you if you have narcissists in your life and you want to understand them better, uh, this uh, episode will be a breath of fresh air for you. Uh, because we get into uh, how you identify narcissist and narcissistic behavior. Uh, we get into the tactics that narcissists will use to maintain their, their ego. Uh, and, and most importantly, uh, what you can do to manage the narcissist in your life. Uh, it, was a, it was an extremely insightful conversation for me, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. All right, we're here with uh, Dr. Ramani Dervasala. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, very, uh, very appreciative of you being on. Uh, so today we're going to be talking a lot about narcissism. Uh, mm-hmm. That is your area of expertise amongst mm-hmm. other uh, topics. Uh, let's just start uh, by getting uh, your definition of narcissism mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and also wh- whether or not it's important to distinguish between uh, the clinical version of narcissism that you might find in the in the DSM uh, versus just sort of the personality trait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So narcissism as a term is a personality pattern. You know, it's not it's not really a clinical term per se. And what it's meant to capture is a pattern characterized by a lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, chronic validation and admiration seeking, a sense of arrogance, a need for control, a hypersensitivity to criticism, um, difficulty regulating emotions, especially around frustration or disappointment, 
difficulty managing stress um, and a real sense to go to a, a real difficulty to of accepting with accepting responsibility with a tendency to shift blame onto other people engaging engage in something called projection or even denial of any involvement or any de denial that there's even a problem so all of that together is a narcissistic personality style now a lot of people take so much umbrage at that word. You shouldn't diagnose them. I said, when calling someone narcissistic, I'm not diagnosing them. I'm describing them um, that it is, we could call it antagonistic. We could call it high conflict. We could call it difficult. We could call it toxic. I tell people, don't get so caught up in that word narcissistic, which seems to really get people's hackles up. Now, I think part of the reason the word narcissism is so loaded is that it's built into a diagnostic description of narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder is one of the 10 personality disorders that's presented in the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And the challenge there is that narcissistic personality disorder is, again, it is a, a pervasive pattern of a pervasive longstanding pattern of all the issues I just listed. The difference is we also have a requirement there that the person is either experiencing subjective distress about being like this, or it's causing them significant social and occupational impairment. Only about mm, most epidemiological studies suggest maybe one to 6%, depending on what study you're looking at of people have narcissistic personality disorder. Yet every single person listening to your podcast can say, but I know at least one person like that. That means it's a lot more than 1% of the population. So, the challenge is, is that in order to meet this diagnostic criterion for narcissistic personality disorder, the person would have to show up in the study or show up in therapy, acknowledge they're having a problem and acknowledge it's affecting their life. And because narcissism or narcissistic personality styles are so characterized by denial, they rarely take ownership of it. So they don't show up as having a problem. They're doing just fine. They may be wreaking havoc, but they're doing just fine. And so I think that when we get too caught up in that word, in fact, I, I, I've said this in some lectures, is that the issue with this term narcissism is that it feels so clinical that it's almost like we're medicalizing meanness. We're right. medicalizing being a jerk and mm -hmm. it is, no, they're just a jerk. And since it, but I think jerk still doesn't capture it as well as narcissism, which takes in so much more territory. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you called out a, a variety of different uh, patterns of behavior to mm -hmm. identify uh, what a narcissist would look like mm -hmm. in terms of when you talk to the public, about narcissism, um, what are the, what's an example of a behavior that you, that you get uh, where people are asking like, is this, is this narcissistic? Because I, I start thinking about all those terms in a, in a very broad sense, but what's the everyday type of behavior? If you have a narcissist in your life, what are, what's gonna be the thing that you observe in them the most that might signal to you that, oh, oh this, is, this is the hallmark of a narcissist? They're incredibly sensitive to criticism incredibly sensitive to criticism. That's the one people miss. And so especially in early days, a lot of people write that off only to social anxiety. And listen, it may be, I'm not saying that just because someone's sensitive to criticism that they're narcissistic. I'm saying that as a red flag, like a person who's depressed, we may initially notice it because they're having problems with concentration and they're becoming socially isolated. Those two patterns by themselves doesn't mean a person's depressed, but they may be early signs of look alive.
and then start paying attention to the other patterns. But I'd say it's that incredible sensitivity to criticism with an almost a sort of a hip, hypocritical approach to it. They can dish it out, but the first time someone puts them under that kind of scrutiny, they get very angry, very rageful, lash out. And you're like, what the, I thought we were having banter. And all of a sudden when the banter became about them, they, they really, really crack. And that, that sort of double standard and sensitivity to criticism is actually one of the things that people often see first. And they don't know what to do with it because in fact, they'll often blame themselves saying, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that to them. But then you'll realize everything they said to you was far, far more cruel. And once that hypocr hypocrisy sets in, it's the other person in the interaction that starts feeling confused. Right. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I try to avoid talking about politics, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up sort of that the leader of the free world is a pretty solid example for everyone mm -hmm. to wrap their brain around in mm -hmm. terms of what a, what a true narcissist looks mm -hmm. like. Um, po politics aside, mm -hmm. it's just kind of, uh, he's objectively a, a really good example of Correct. that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, what you see, what you see in the, in the president that's, that's most troubling in terms of uh, displaying narcissistic behaviors? It's his inability to take responsibility and to, and constantly blame shift. That's a big pattern we see in narcissism that makes a relationship with them very, very difficult because I think anybody could have a civil argument with somebody if both people in the argument could take ownership, even if their views are deeply polarized. It's the incapacity to take responsibility and the need to always be right and to dominate and to win no matter what with little regard for the bigger picture, that's a very signature, signature quality there. And then when cornered, there's a tremendous amount of contempt. Contempt usually for the person who's calling him out, contempt for people who are more vulnerable. And then what's very dangerous in any kind of leader is then to lash out and take it out on anybody who will not get on board and punishing, punishing states punishing governors, punishing people who won't get on board with the agenda, punishing staff, you know, and then ultimately punishing a nation. And so it's that punitiveness of how dare you, how dare you get in my way, that those are the patterns that really, really jump out. And obviously the constant need for validation from the very beginning, it was how can I get lots of people staring at me while I talk and telling me how wonderful I am, which is why somebody who loves rallies that much it's very much, it's just pretty much, yeah. you know, it's delivery of validation. Those kinds of patterns are, are concerning and probably do not befit a leader. And yet we, we cultivate them in leaders all the time. Yeah. Th there's, uh, speaking of, you know, these rallies, I mean, personally, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, it would be very, very uncomfortable to be uh, at a, like a rally just for you. Like someone that isn't mm -hmm. a narcissist, you know, they're looking at constant praise, like, oh, that, that would make me uncomfortable. I don't think I could handle that. Correct. Uh, but you, you know, you talked about, uh, about uh, insecurity. Uh, in, your, in your new book, uh, you talk about insecurity as being one of these, these cornerstones um, as well. Um, uh, how does insecurity, so you, it, where does this insecurity come from? Insecurity. Uh, 
Insecurity is literally the core of the narcissist. I think that that's how it has to be. It's not a piece of it. It's the core of it. Uh, an individual would not need to be grandiose, entitled, and validation-seeking if they were able to self-regulate. If their core sense of self was solid and consistent and predictable, and they felt okay with themselves, I mean, it's nice to get a compliment, but it's not the air that they breathe. And that insecurity, it becomes sort of the, the center of the orbit. And all of these patterns I talked about, the lack of empathy and all the rest, are all, are all acting in service to that insecurity, which the narcissistic individual has no insight about. They're not aware of saying, you know, I'm insecure about this issue. Absolutely not. What they do is they double down and they defend against it through all of these psychological maneuvers. Yeah, I, I, I like what you said about the lack of awareness too. I think for the, for the lay person, it's, a, it's hard to swallow uh, when you explain that this jerk, you know, who's displaying narcissistic behaviors, um, that, that they're not aware of it. And I personally, that lack of awareness draws out a tiny amount of sympathy from me um, because, you know, lack of, from what I, uh, from what I've gathered from talking to people who have not studied psychology, lack of awareness doesn't make sense. Like, what do you mean you're, they don't understand they're being a jerk? Of course they know they're being a jerk. Um, would, do you, do you think, uh, so is it your view that uh, that by um, saying that that narcissists aren't really aware of what they're doing is are, you're not trying to make an excuse, correct? Absolutely not, and I don't mean it. So, in other words, they can turn it on and off. Narcissists actually have a fair amount of emotional intelligence. They're the best salespeople out there. So, don't tell me they're completely not aware. They're aware. <clears throat> when, excuse me, they're aware when they want to be aware. Okay. So that's why they can get you to buy something you don't want to buy. That's how they can rope you into a relationship by seducing you. They're aware of what they need to be aware of then. But then when you're no longer of any utilitarian or instrumental use to them, they're no longer aware because they can't be bothered. They got what they needed. They're done. It's like, I'm aware of my, my spoon when I'm eating cereal. I'm not worried about my spoon for the rest of the day. Why? Because it's a spoon. It's not a person. And so that idea, it's not, I think one of the things that people sometimes confuse is that there are actually neurodevelopmental disorders in the world where people literally do lack a sense of self-awareness. It's at a neurological level. However, when it is explained to them intellectually, they're saying, oh, I need to pay attention to that. And they'll have to expend the resources. They're not contemptuous of the other person. It's just not how their brains are organized. That's not the case in narcissism. There's actually a contempt for other people, a dismissive contempt of, I can't be bothered. You're of no use to me right now. So please don't make me listen to your blah, blah. But I'll listen to your blah, blah. If it's going to get me, I can get to have sex with you. I can get you to buy something. I can get you to validate me, whatever it is, because they're certainly able to, they're able to read the emotions and be aware of their presence with their boss when they need to, when they're trying to win over mm -hmm. the boss. So they're mighty self-aware then. So they can turn that on and off to their own convenience. Okay. Um, so let's take a step back and visit sort of uh, the, the childhood of mm -hmm. someone who might be likely to develop uh, narcissistic traits. Mm -hmm. um, is my mind immediately goes to 
to the self-esteem movement from the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. and the misinterpretation that kind of came out of that. So right in the 70s and 80s, there were, um, I mean, there were literally government task, task forces uh, dedicated to looking at, at the role of self-esteem and, uh, and uh, it's how it affects the outcomes of children. I mean, there were, it was literally, you know, the most important thing for children is that they have, uh, that they avoid low self-esteem. And it wasn't until much later that social psychologists started realizing that this, that, that that's an incomplete picture, that it's not, uh, yes, self-esteem self is important. You don't want to have low self-esteem. However, if you, if you just tell children they're special and build up their self-esteem without actually tying it to anything meaningful, you, you will get this fragile self-esteem. And, uh, and, and you, I, you started hearing the term self-esteem and then self-esteem stability. Uh, so how do you think, uh, do you think that, uh, that, that narcissists uh, had a childhood where they were, they were basically having their, their self-esteem artificially inflated? Is that, is that a big part of, of, of the development of narcissism? Not necessarily. Um, narcissist manifestation is, in fact, the DSM terms it as variable and vulnerable self-esteem. Okay, so it is vulnerable to the whims of the world. If they're having a good day, they have inflated self-esteem. If things don't go their way, they have a completely deflated self-esteem. Self-esteem should have constancy to it. Okay, and self-esteem should be holistic. A person understanding their strengths and their weaknesses, but still having a solid sense of identity. Okay, it's not that. What we see, and it can be in a, in a subset of cases who, if, if people who go on to be narcissistic, they are only sort of touted for their virtues and they're told how wonderful they are and they can't do anything wrong. But what we're actually seeing more consistently clinically is that the narcissistic child may have very much been overindulged at some levels, overindulged materially, overindulged in terms of look how great you are, overindulged in terms of being, you know, almost the entire family organizing around their soccer games or their ballet things, or like the child almost got too much, like they were getting focused on too much for their achievements. But the child is simultaneously underindulged as to their emotional world. They are not allowed to talk in terms of emotion. They're not allowed to share emotion. When they do, their parents will either not be engaged, be uninterested and cut away. The child then learns over the course of that childhood that their emotional world has little value. And a child simply wants to get notice from a parent. That's how a child feels safe. So they start to learn that the way they draw safety out of their environment is to stick to these rather superficial pursuits or to attend to their parents' narcissistic or other needs. But there's also a darker side to this. Many people who have narcissistic patterns in adulthood have experienced rather, rather neglectful, traumatic childhoods. There's a lot of negation in their childhood. And in that way, this isn't about all narcissists you know, are, are evil. It's that they're actually quite, they can be quite damaged by this. And what that does is it really squeezes out the capacity. They never got to learn things like empathy. And so many people actually paint narcissism as an attachment disorder, disorder, that there were disruptions in their earliest attachments and that they often have a rather anxious attachment style. So they're always pedaling faster to make sure that people stick around just like the infant 
was actually quite insecure on, on the availability and the consistency of their caregiver. So by viewing it through this holistic lens and not just as simplistically as a byproduct of a self-esteem movement gone awry, I think we are actually then able to see the depth of this, which A, has implications for people who are developing treatment models for narcissism. But for me, I'm always trying to tread the very, very, very thin line of telling people, I do not want you to dismiss this person cruelly. I don't want you to be um, cruel, cold. I don't want you to lack compassion. What I don't want you to be is their punching bag. So it may very well mean you gently have to show the narcissist the door and they will rage at you. Understand that, that rage has nothing to do with you. It is it, this is stuff that they need to work on and it ain't your job to be their therapist. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so... You know, you were talking a little bit about uh, about the dynamics of the childhood of a narcissist. Does how to what extent does uh, does the prevalence of narcissism in your personality change over time as you go through adolescence into adulthood? Uh, is it is it consistent or does it tend to show up in at certain points or is you know is it progressive as well? We never want to say too much about personality until a person has fully emerged into adulthood. If you read any of the literature on personality, personality development, and even brain development, what we do know is the prefrontal cortex is pretty consistently developing right into probably like into the early to mid 20s. And so as a result of that, even constructs like empathy, adolescents are very, very, um, are, are very egocentric for a reason, not because they're bad, but because they're attempting to separate and individuate and become their own little adults. And so in that way, those of us who are parenting adolescents will say, is my child narcissistic? And I'll say, slow down, soldier, like give them a second. Now they may be as just as much a jerk at 30 as when they were 17. And I'm sorry for you, but at 17, your entitled, intransigent, nasty adolescent may not be narcissistic. They may just be 17 because that's the nature of where the empathy development and neural development is at that stage. I don't even think taking that word out and talking about sort of narcissistic personality styles becomes particularly valid until somebody's over the age of 25. And what's so unfortunate is a lot, especially in the social and personality realms of psychology, a lot of the research is done using undergraduates who are about 20 and 19, 20 and 21, their brains are still developing. So I've always sort of doubted a little bit of the validity of some of that work. I'd say, I'd like to see this data collected when they're 30. And let's talk then. Because absolutely, if you have somebody who's very narcissistic at 30, they were a handful at 17. But there's plenty of handfuls at 17 who are fully functioning, empathic, sol psychologically solid people at 30. So you have to be very careful about extrapolating from adolescent patterns. And that said, once we're in adulthood, now this bread is cooked, it's baked, you're done. And you're not going to likely see shifts. There's some variability in sort of the conversation about narcissism in later life. Some people believe there can be a slight softening, mostly because nobody's going to give an older person regard. We're a very ageist society, so they don't, may not have the same kinds of so, uh, um, narcissistic supply readily available. But in the same breath, there's also some belief that personality traits really calcify in older adulthood. So that disagreeable, difficult 40-year-old is a very disagreeable 80-year-old and even more disagreeable because their body isn't working well, maybe their hearing isn't working as well, and 
they're devalued by society. So they don't hold the same status as they once did by dint of employment status or other powers they held in society. Um, in some rarer cases, there's a circumspection. I'm getting old and we only get one spin around. And so people might have that recognition. But by and large, we tend to see that many narcissistic individuals, by the time they get into older age, have often burned a lot of their bridges. And so it's a sort of a sadder ending to those stories. But it tends to be a pattern characterized by a lot of constancy. That said, there are always unicorns. And the unicorns do sometimes surprise me when they say, I see that I'm behaving really badly. I really want to fix this. And, I, and then what is hard, though? is I, am, I will work with them and say, here's your survival plan. And they'll say, you're telling me every time I talk to someone, I actually have to listen to them like I care. I'm like, uh-huh. And they're saying, oh my God, like, I don't know if I can do this. And I said, either you do it or you don't. If you don't, you know what that story looks like. So it's hard. It's hard work to break out of this cycle. I don't envy anyone who does because it's very, very difficult. And um, again, I can count on one hand the number of people I've seen successfully pull it off. So let's stay on this a little bit. So um, in your book, you, you talk about how the, the, the treatment for, for a narcissist has a fairly low success rate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what, is, what's, what is the playbook today for, playbook for treating nar narcissists? So the playbook for treating narcissists, it's interesting. I have I've given lectures and, you know, and talked about this and there's some huge books about it. There are probably a little over a dozen different treatments out there that are used in clinical trials used to manage the patterns we see in narcissism. The challenge with that research literature is it's often very case-based two patients, three patients, five patients. And it's often predicated on very long-term therapy at least once, sometimes twice a week for 18 months or longer. I can say that in the United States of America in 2020, unless you've got a lot of money, you ain't getting therapy for 18 months, once or twice a week, every week with a highly trained therapist. It's not happening. So that's like saying, if you have an Olympic trainer living in your house 24 seven, you too could be in great shape. I have no doubt, unless this Olympic <laughs> trainer is gonna move in my house for free, I'm gonna sort of stay in the sort of flabby way I am. So it's this idea that in under the most pristine of conditions, that if you do this therapy in this very specific way for a very long time, that you could see improvement, to me, that's actually kind of depressing. Because it, what we do know, for example, well, there was a study done by Hilsenroth in 1998. That group found that narcissists were almost 60% more likely to drop out of therapy. And for most of us who aren't working in the rarefied space of evidence-based therapy in university clinics, what we find is that as soon as you turn the heat on in the narcissist, they drop out of therapy. And so if they drop out, we're not even seeing treatment outcomes. So then even the people who finish a course of therapy are a uniquely rare motivated group of people with this kind of personality pattern. So no, the treatment literature is not encouraging. Yeah, aside, aside from the fact that if you confront a narcissist and, and try to convince them that they need help, uh, you're going to get a wave of denial. <laughs> you're not even going to get them into the psychologist or the psychiatrist's office because of the defense mechanisms that they have in place with, uh, with you know, denying that they have an issue, turning it back on you, um, lying. Um, so <clears throat> I wanted to talk uh, 
about lying in particular. It's, it's one of the, in terms of the narcissist in my life, that is one of the, uh, one of the most obvious behaviors and most frustrating behaviors um, to deal with. Um, narcissists, I assume that they use lying to defend themselves, to, to defend their insecurity. Um, my question for you is, do you think that narcissists are, are burdened by, their, by lying? Are, are they ex I'm, I'm interested in hearing about what you think is the internal experience when narcissists are lying as a, as a mode of protecting their ego. I think the key thing that everyone needs to remember about defense mechanisms, whether they're our own or those in the narcissist, is they really do operate out of the level of ready consciousness. So many of the things we do are not intentional. And for a narcissistic individual where so many pathological defenses are operating, everything is being done to protect this fragile sense of self, okay? They're fragile, so every lie they tell, every entitlement they engage in, all of the arrogance, protect, 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 protect. They're not saying like, mm, must protect fragile sense of self. That's not an intentional maneuver. They're lying to protect their sort of kind of distorted narrative that allows them to look not damaged because at the most unconscious level, that's their experience of self. That if their, if their deficits ever got exposed to the world, it would seem absolutely cataclysmic to them. So every ounce of their psyche is around protecting themselves against those deficits ever being seen. So when they do it, it is all about winning. It's always, it's always about the end game. It's never about the other person. So it's never about if I lie to this person, they may feel hurt by the betrayal of trust. It's like protect, 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 because there's very little ability to see outside of the self. Because at the core of it, individuals who have narcissistic personality styles have core deficits in empathy and in the capacity for intimacy. They inherently devalue human relationships that aren't serving a purpose for them. And so if you are getting in the way of them getting the thing they need to win, to maintain the grandiose exterior, they're going to lie to get it. It's, I, the only analogy I could give to you is imagine someone who's starving, who's actually a nice person, but they push everyone away to get to the table of food because they're so hungry. The narcissist is always that hungry. So they'll push people away through their lies and everything to be able to get to that thing they want. I mean, and while at some level, like you said, it's kind of sad, it's also not acceptable. Yeah. It's yeah. not acceptable. That's, that is the dynamic that I, I have trouble with and I have trouble you know, explaining to my friends who complain to me about someone in their life that's narcissistic. It, what you just said about, uh, about the reflexive nature of lying and how it's all about them mm -hmm. and it's, it's, not a, it's, has, it's, mm -hmm. it's not calculated at all, that makes me feel incredibly uh, sad for, for them. And yet, and, and sometimes that sadness dominates. Uh, I obviously have to use that to, to set boundaries with my friends that exhibit these behaviors. But then uh, you also said that it's not acceptable. I think that, that's, a, that's a strange dynamic, I think, for the average person to, to deal with. That, that's something you can feel bad for someone, but it, it can't be acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. Because the fact of the matter is, is that it's a, 
you know, it's something we call cognitive dissonance, right? The brain has a lot of trouble holding two dissonant viewpoints at the same time. So justifications get launched to make the puzzle pieces fit. He didn't know what he's saying. He's a little insecure. I'm going to do the nice thing. I'm like, nah, you don't need to, you don't need to make the pieces fit. You can say, I understand why this person's doing this and it's unacceptable. So I need to distance myself from this relationship because if I don't, then I'm simply enabling this behavior because I can only tell you one thing. They're going to lie again. First time, shame on them. Second time, shame on you. You know, for you to I keep lying. If they keep lying, then what are you showing up for? Well, I feel bad if I'm not their friend. I said, then you've signed up for a liar. At least get into the acceptance mode that this person's going to lie to you and I'm keeping this person around out of guilt. Just put it all out on the table and be very transparent about what's happening. And the, and the sad thing is you let one person in like that in your life, you're going to let in more. It's like flies. Once the door is open, they're all going to come swarming in. Whereas someone's like, yeah, no, I'm not. This was a betrayal. I no longer trust you. And it may not be that there's a grand show of like, I'm cutting you out of my life. It's that you no longer trust them with significant things and the relationship may end up having to remain at a much more superficial, hey, you want to watch the game or hey, you want to go get some, a quick bite of lunch, but you don't share significant things with them, nor do you ever allow them into your life in a high stakes kind of a way. Absolutely. It, 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 is, uh, it is astounding how well that, that advice sort of fits with what I've seen. Uh, it sort of, it, it, not only does it align with what I've, told uh, peers that are dealing with uh, with narcissists but yeah it, it, that is that's spot on um, could uh, let's stay down this path you, you mentioned boundary setting as one of the ways that you can deal with narcissists in your life do you have any other uh, thoughts about how to how to um, how to approach narcissists when you identify them I know you talk about uh, you actually go into much more detail in the book where narcissists uh, that are your uh, intimate partner and your boss, but let's, let's talk about just uh, friends for now. What, what's your advice to people that, uh, that are trying to deal with narcissists that are their friends? I would say, you know, you're going to, again, you're going to have to engage in this relationship probably at a more superficial level. And above all else, you have to have realistic expectations. This person can't go deep. They just can't. So don't try to push it in a direction it can't go in. Just like you may have a friend who's not very physically fit, so they're not going to be able to do the 15-mile one-day you know, one hike with you. It doesn't mean they're not a good friend. It may simply mean that this is not someone I can push through these paces. A friend like this, is you have to have realistic expectations. They are going to be deceitful. They are going to be entitled. They are, they'll have no problem replacing you if someone else better comes along. If you can get your head around all of that, you won't be as shocked. You may still be a little hurt, but you won't be as shocked, which really then goes into the space of radical acceptance. This is who this person is. You have to then take a deeper dive in you and say, what is it about this person that I'm allowing someone that's not healthy for me in my life? It could be nostalgia. They've been my friend since high school. It could be that, you know what? I have this one little niche interest. They have this niche interest. We do this one bicycle ride every weekend and I can just listen to the yammer on nonsense. But for most of the bike ride, we're not talking. So I'm able to make this work. 
So people have to engage in radical acceptance means being honest with yourself about a situation and recognizing this person won't change. But once you're actually in it with them and having conversations, I often tell people, don't defend yourself and don't explain yourself because they're not listening to you. So you're exhausting yourself and you are just basically swimming against the current. So don't do it. You know, when, when it's going on, it can feel very one-sided. So that's what I'm saying is that you really have to figure out what it is about this person that you're keeping them in your life and, and then and set the boundaries accordingly. And as I said, you may have to recognize that this is somebody I can't go deep with, but they're not, you know, they're, they're perfectly fine to have at a party. They make everyone laugh, but they also may have views that are very polarized from you and you again, especially in a very polarized time in our, our world, you have to decide how much of that you want to be around. In the long run, it's not a healthy relationship for you, but you, again, it's all about putting all the cards on the table and really being way, willing to take a hard look at it. But the don't engage, don't defend, don't explain, realistic expectations, radical acceptance, and then you might be, and then boundaries, boundaries, boundaries you might be able to make something of it. But then after you're like, I can't engage with them. I can't explain with them. I can't defend myself to them. Like, what's the point of this? Well, that's on you to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, but yeah, it, people that experience empathy in a healthy way are very, very confused by the behaviors of, of a narcissist. It's, it's, it just doesn't, it, it, it never, it never actually fits together because you, you tell yourself, well, I would never do that. And why would you do that to someone? And it's, and uh, you know, it, I, it, the answer is compli is complicated and, and it's, it's almost as if empathy makes it, uh, it creates kind of this us for us and them dynamic where it's like, I just don't, I, it's kind of like uh, with, um, you know, when we try to understand terrorism in the Middle East, it's like, why would, you know, why would, why would someone blow themselves up? Like that doesn't, it doesn't compute. And I feel to a certain extent when the average person tries to understand narcissism, it doesn't compute. Yeah, but it does compute. And I think it's because people want to, we're not all the same. We're all very, very different. Our appetites and our capacity for things like empathy and intimacy are very, very different. And they look very different. This is not a universal kind of a thing. It would be great if it was, but it's not. And it never has been in the history of the species. In fact, if you read Robert Sapolsky's work, especially his most recent work, Behave, I think he's actually one of the most brilliant scholars on human nature. And ironically, he's, he's in the neuroscience realm. He's one here's the first one who'll say we're probably more empathic now than we've ever been in the history of the human race like we're not you know we're not just sort of killing each other for sport we're not torturing each other in the same way like there's actually a strangely if you his his book does a phenomenal job of laying this out that said that said it's this idea of we are not what we're not allowed to do is trust our instincts we have that was silenced for us from our parents and by our schools who are like, everyone's the same, treat everyone the same. One of the most important things I said to my kids when they were small is everyone's not the same. You are not gonna like all your peers. And I understand if you don't wanna play with someone, what you are never permitted to do is treat a peer disrespectfully. What I will never force you to do is play with a child you don't want. It's okay to have an opinion. You don't have to like everyone. And so 
to give people that permission that yeah, some people aren't so nice. It's okay to dislike some of your teachers or some of your peers, or even sometimes some of the behavior of your parent. We don't give kids that permission. And that's where we set the course. And we still, even as adults, maintain this infantile mentality of everyone has to get along. No, everyone doesn't. At what everyone needs to do is learn to hold safe, spa safe spaces and engage it from a place of civility. I think we could get there. But I think this idea of, well, I can't get my head around it. It's, they, they just, they don't value empathy. It's not, it doesn't come naturally for them. And so it's, it's like a language they don't speak. It doesn't, it's not important. And so they're not going to value it. It's that simple. And then you see that and rather quickly, I've seen this happen. I've been at once upon a time when we still had social gatherings, it was very clear to me inside of 60 seconds into a conversation, this person didn't have empathy. And I'm like, this is really tragic. This, and am I, I'm internally saying this person's so insecure, they can't step out of themselves long enough to see another perspective. They're likely socially anxious. And then I leave the conversation. Like life's too short for me to be somebody's empathy teacher at a cocktail party. I'm not interested. Uh, so that made me think of our culture as a whole in terms of, uh, you know, part, uh, one could argue that uh, whether or not narcissism has become more prevalent, it is, it, it seems as though it's become, um, uh, it, it's become less acceptable socially than maybe the 70s, 80s and 90s. However, it, it feels like it's also become um, uh, more acceptable in teenagers and, and, young, and, and uh, young people. Um, do you agree with that or am I way off base? I don't agree with that, actually. I think narcissism has never been more acceptable than it is right now, which is why everybody, in fact, somebody was recently giving me the numbers and they were telling me on YouTube, there's like over 9 million videos on YouTube about narcissism. There's a reason for that. And I think that it has become acceptable. And I think a lot of people are enabling it. And I think social media was the accelerant on this one. I think in the last 15 years, what we've seen is an entire economy develop around reality television and social media, which really is a space where the narcissists are always going to do best. It's a validation seeking space. It's a very superficial and shallow space. And so as a result of that, you have these people who are showing what seems like brilliant success. We're in a very, very consumerist, materialist, consumption-oriented, capitalistic world. So the person who has the biggest house and the fastest car and the most expensive shoes or bags or watch or vacations, those are the people who are, are viewed as paragons of success. And that is highly correlated with narcissism. We've never valued narcissism more because by valuing those things, we do value narcissism. So I actually think it is prevalent across everybody. I think people who are hurt by it in their individual lives are finding it to be reprehensible. But I think every time we say, he behaved badly, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt we're enabling it and we're saying this is normal. So I don't think it's ever been more acceptable than it is right now. This is, and that's gotta stop because I actually think it's taking a huge toll on people's mental health. So that, that's interesting because, I mean, I mean my, my thoughts were kind of that, that people are, they're willing to, they, they're less willing to accept narcissism and others correct that, right do you see what i mean versus uh sort of um 
less likely to accept it in others, but then secretly or, or subconsciously want more focus on themselves. Does that make sense? It does. And I think what has happened though, is like, and this is what happens, for example, in narcissistic relationships and narcissistic family systems. It becomes a survivalism mentality because what happens is that in order to survive in those systems, because typically the narcissistic person in a relationship or in a family dominates in order to survive in that system or even get your needs met, you need to learn to become a dominant person yourself or you're going to get crushed. And so I think that what's happening is that there's this acculturation to, a, to an entire society that actually values these patterns. So to be the quiet, empathic entrepreneur, good luck with that. And so I think that what ends up happening is that it's, I don't... I don't think people value it in someone else. They won't say, hey, I just met a great new guy and he doesn't have empathy and he's really entitled and grandiose. I don't think anyone's walking around saying that. But I think what has happened is people aren't willing to shut it down. They are willing to enable it. And sometimes because it's associated with so many sort of societally positive attributes like fiscal success. But I also think because we are all socialized to go along to get along versus this pattern is actually not acceptable. So let's not promote this person or maybe let's not involve. So I, I, this is where I think, you know, it's, uh, I don't fully agree. I think that we enable it. I think we are acknowledging that it's unhealthy. And yet in the same breath, dating is a great example of it. People want the person who looks good on paper. Well, unfortunately, the person who looks good on paper probabilistically may be more likely to be a narcissist. Right, right. And, and the same, same with, uh, with being in leadership positions in companies and stuff like that, where it kind of, it's kind of a feedback loop of, of mm-hmm. the, the people that are more likely to be at the top. They, they probably do have uh, a, a larger uh, sprinkle of narcissism compared to everyone else, right? Um, I'd say it's more than a sprinkle. I mean, because one thing we do know is that inherently narcissistic individuals are the ones more likely to assiduously pursue leadership. It's a bit of a chicken egg issue. So for if you all things being equal, some people, just like you said, I wouldn't want to rally. I wouldn't want all those people shouting my name. Some people say, you know what, as much as the leader makes a little more, I don't want the headaches. I don't need the title. Like I'm good at my job. And while that extra $20,000 would be great. You know, it's, uh, I don't want, I don't want that. I don't need to feel, I, that's not how I need to feel important. I feel like my work is important, even though that person may not be getting a lot of validation that the two, there is, there is a sort of a correlation of the person who pursues leadership may have more of those sort of narcissistic traits. And I'm not saying all leaders are narcissistic, not my right. long shot, but a preponderance are. And that's the struggle is that in some ways, the way leadership structures are constructed is you have to knock other people out of the way to get to the, to become king of the mountain, there is a certain lack of empathy that comes from, I'm going to throw this person under the bus if that's what's needed in an organization to get there where someone else might say, you know what, I don't feel comfortable doing this. So I, I, you know, if this is the way I get ahead in this organization, maybe I'll switch organizations or something like that. But again, we see, we see what happens when there is empathic leadership and rather extraordinarily, extraordinary things can happen. I think there's countries in the world right now, like New Zealand, who has, which has an actually a rather empathic seemingly non-narcissistic prime minister. I don't know her, but every measure she's put forth has been solid. And really what she's concerned with is the protection of the citizenry of her country. New Zealand seems to be flourishing. Mm -hmm. 
so one last question. Um, so your most recent book, uh, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility, mm -hmm. is essentially a, a catalog of, of information about, uh, about narcissists. Um, my last question for you is, um, what is, what is an unanswered question about narcissism that, that you're curious about? Something that we, we don't quite have a grasp on hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, the unanswered question on narcissism is the developmental question. The long-term prospective study that would say, where does this come from? If we could see that following a hundred, you know, cohort of 100,000 people getting the measurements of parenting and adverse childhood experiences and following them year over year from infancy into probably the age of 30, 35, that's the data I want to see because all of this will be speculative until that day. The other thing I would say in the realm of narcissism, I don't think this would yield much, but which is, are there significant neural substrates? Is there, is there sort of a neuroscience of narcissism? There's been some speculation around empathy areas of the brain, limbic regulation, but it doesn't hang together the way it does in other kinds of high conflict personality patterns like borderline personality and antisocial personality, where there's a more robust ideological and neuroscience literature, narcissism doesn't have that. And so the combination of those two things has made it a bit, you know, I wish I knew those things because um, I, I think that would inform treatment. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Romani, for being on the show. We are out of time. Uh, I appreciate you taking out of your uh, taking time out of your busy day to uh, to have this conversation. I enjoyed Thank it. You so Thank much. you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, if you'd like more information on Dr. Romani, uh, you can visit her website, dr-romani.com. That's doctor, uh, spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I, drromani.com. And you can also uh, visit her YouTube channel where she has tons and tons of videos on narcissism and other topics. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. If you haven't already, head over to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And if you like this episode, please give us a rating and a review. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. As I mentioned in the intro, the Facebook page for the show is going to be the best place for up-to-date information on the podcast. So head over to Facebook, type in Why Do We Do That, and click like. We are also now on Instagram and Twitter. So uh, for Twitter, the handle is at WDWDTPod. Uh, that's WDWDTPod uh, on Twitter. And on Instagram, you can look for Why Do We Do That Podcast. You can also email me if you'd like uh, directly at uh, Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? Mm -hmm.